Well, I've asked uh, Brother Hivali if he'd come and read the scriptures for us from Job chapter 1. Brother, would you come, please? Uh, this is indeed a privilege to read the word for all of us as we worship together. And I have a couple of comments before we read the, um, the whole portion, Job 1, the entire chapter. Uh, there is a testimony of God's, uh, God's testimony about this person, Job. And uh, Psalm 125 also talks about the same thing. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So in nutshell, uh, as we come to worship here, actually the worship goes with us outside because when people look at us, they also should worship our God by looking at who we are. With that faith and uh, understanding, let's read Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And there were many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one and this day and his day, on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the day of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, even increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sibians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell upon heaven, fell from heaven, and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I alone saved, escaped to tell you. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This far is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Brother Havali. <clears throat> so, uh, as those of you who have been here, uh, you can tell right away, we're not going to continue on in 2 Corinthians uh, today. Uh, just uh, <clears throat> as taking a little break from it, uh, particularly as I've been thinking about the afflictions that uh, a number of our members here have been enduring of late. And... Uh, just particularly the Schmitz, as uh, uh, Bob has in, uh, talked to me about, just it's like one hurdle after the other that just keeps uh, presenting itself and trying to get treatments uh, to Joan that would be effective. And the discouragements that are there and the, the challenges that are there, and it just seemed uh, appropriate to spend time, maybe for all of us, to consider again this whole matter of suffering and the sovereignty of God in these things and how we are to approach these things as we all have times of affliction and difficulty. Some are uh, light afflictions um, in the big scheme of things and others are uh, much more serious and 
feel like they are just overwhelming to us. How do we, how do we do, how do we deal with that? And particularly when we look at at these circumstances and can't figure out not just why, but what is happening. I know in our sister Joan's case, it's been months and months and months to even be able to find out uh, up there uh, what exactly was wrong and what exactly the extent was and, and, and how serious it all was. Just trying to get those answers was difficult and adds to the whole uh, fear factor, if I can use that phrase, because the unknown is a fearful thing. Is it not? Whether it's our health, our finances, our relationships, or anything else in this life, uh, we have to face it. We don't know very much. And especially uh, about what the, the future will bring, we know even less. I mean, think about it. If, if you and I had everything that we needed to address a problem, we wouldn't be afraid of it. Some of you know I'm working on a, a re, rebuilding an old car. Well, I know I, I know that I don't have all the tools that I need. And I look at that thing, and I part of the reason that I get stymied sometimes, it's not so much fear, but just sort of dread, because it's like, I know it's going to need this, and I don't really know what I'm doing, and I don't have the tools anyway, so it's like, uh, do I, what do I, how do I go about this? And that's just a silly car. When it comes to things that are actually important in life, if we, we, we recognize many times we don't have the tools that we need to, to deal with it, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And with those, but if we had those, if we had everything we needed, or at least we thought we did, and there are people that walk through life who think that they need nothing, and so therefore they walk fearlessly in where angels uh, fear to tread, and uh, sometimes with some interesting consequences, but nonetheless, if we are honest with ourselves and recognize that we don't know and we don't have everything that we need, yeah, it's fearful. And that, un that fearful, uh, unknown future, when it presses in on us, we, uh, we're confronted with how ill-equipped we are to handle those things. And that can be pretty terrifying. So what's the solution? Well, you need to be complete. You need to be complete. Uh, but there is only one way for that to be true of you and me. You're only going to be complete if you're righteous. Now, we're going to walk through that process here a little bit. It's a big theme in the book of Job. His righteousness, his integrity. We're going to talk about that. You may notice the title of this message this morning is called Complete in Suffering. Uh, at all times when we feel incomplete, it's when we're suffering. We just don't have what we need. It's that way in everyday life, and it's, in that, way, it's that way in our souls as well. So there's some really uh, practical matters that are here in the book of Job, but also it points us forward to these spiritual principles about the nature of our soul also. Now I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a, what Mike Matthews would, would call a 30,000-foot view of the book of Job. This is a, we're going to fly over this, and I want you to hang in there with me. This is going to be a little bit different this morning 
because I want to lay some groundwork. So it's going to be a little bit of a teaching time to begin with, and then we'll make some applications as we go along. But I want to start off with a general introduction to the book. And like I say, I'm going to fly through this. Um, if you're taking notes, unless you're, you know, like a court, you know, stenographer or something, you, you're not going to keep up. So uh, uh, just try to take the whole picture in as we will, as you will. Uh, this book, uh, at least the events of it, not when it was written so much, but uh, the events of it are set in the patriarchal, patriarchal period, probably earlier than Abraham. I'll give you a reason for that uh, in just a moment. But that would place the events of the book pre-2000 uh, BC. And, and the reason I say earlier than Abraham in all likelihood is that there's no indication whatsoever in this book at all about any connection whatsoever with with the Jews. And of course, there was no Jewish nation before Abraham. So uh, because of that, most scholars think that it's set in a pre-Abrahamic period. Still, uh, here you see Job does call upon the name of the Lord. So the, the name of the Lord is not unknown. Uh, just uh, the Lord has not yet revealed himself uh, to Abraham and, begin, and begun to distill down um, how and and through whom he's going to reveal himself to the world uh, through the children of Abraham. Now, the uh, land here is called the land of Uz. Uh, it may uh, very likely was named after, after uh, a son of Aram named Uz. He was the grandson of Shem. Uh, we read about him in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, it, this is sometimes, this area is sometimes identified with the kingdom of Edom, which is roughly uh, the area of modern-day southwestern Jordan and southern Israel, so south and west of, south and east, excuse me, of, uh, of Jerusalem, if that helps you at all in your mind's eye. Uh, the, uh, uh, the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says in chapter 4, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwells in the land of Uz. So, that seems to be a likely location. Notice also another indication that this is patriarchal period is the long life that is still going on. Job's 140 years old in this book. So we have uh, that is still uh, a reality in the lives of many people of that day. Uh, wealth is measured in possessions. You probably got that picture if you hadn't uh, seen that before in that first chapter. You know, camels, sheep. Uh, all of the things that are there, uh, that's, that's where all the wealth uh, was, was packed into, was those, those animals. And, of course, there's livelihood, sustenance for what they could provide in terms of meat and clothing and everything else that animals can provide there. We, it's a family clan system. You see that going on with all the brothers and their sisters and how they're interacting together as a family in their various homes and so on, all still very much under the oversight of their father, even though they're grown children. They, by oversight, I simply mean they recognize there's an accountability and an honor that's there. He prays for them, uh, offers sacrifices for them, and um, they uh, work together there as that family clan. They don't just all go off and do their own thing. Uh, there is that connection. Now, it's interesting, uh, something else that you should know is that in this book, the name of God that is specific in this book is the name Shaddai. Uh, you may have heard in 
It's a song called El Shaddai, but it speaks of, that's the Hebrew word for almighty or sufficient one. Uh, it's not that, it's not that uh, nobody knew the name of Yahweh. It's that prior to Abraham, when the Lord really reveals himself by that covenant name, as he focuses in his covenant with Abraham, the more general term of the Almighty One, or Sufficient One, which is really significant for the theme of this book, by the way, uh, it occurs uh, of the 47 Old Testament occurrences of this name that refers to God, 31 of them are in this book of Job. Now put that together with some of the themes that we're going to talk about in a minute, and you'll see why that is so important. You know, the Lord tends to reveal himself to us in the ways that are most needful to us at the time. And here, uh, as he reveals himself as Shaddai, the Almighty One, that has to be something that is a source of comfort to Job in his sufferings. But this is how the patriarchs experienced God. Uh, there is special revelation that is shown here as the Lord ministers back and forth, uh, particularly later parts of the book, as he and Job have their uh, discussion. Uh, uh, after Abraham, God tended to limit his revelation to his chosen people, at least for the most part, and uh, revealed himself more personally than by his covenant name, Yahweh, and particularly then renewed that under Moses, right, with the, to the children of Israel as they were suffering there in Egypt. So this book is, uh, I would say, most scholars agree that it's the oldest in storyline, where, when it's set, but not in writing. It, it's, it's likely that uh, someone like Solomon or uh, a contemporary, someone during Solomon's time, around 1000 BC, would have written it. Um, and, and here's a couple of reasons why uh, that is thought to be so. One, Job has been regarded as canonical, as God's word for a very long time. Not any real discussion about that. But in order for there to be, for the Jews to recognize a book as being of God, there needed to be a prophetic, a, you know, a recognized prophet as an author. The, the tradition would have been uh, then that someone um, uh, that the Lord used in a specific way among his people in a prophetic sense uh, would, have, uh, would have written it. Uh, the Jews, um, uh, or, sorry, I mentioned that. So this is also the most difficult book in the Old Testament to translate. And that is because of the very high uh, quality, high grade uh, um, literary structure, um, it, a lot of rare vocabulary here. And so many people have thought that Solomon, of all people who would, the wisest man of all, you know, uh, that ever lived, <laughs> um, would uh, be one, particularly with his other books as well. There's some similarities in structure and vocab there. So that is one reason why. Certainly around 1000 BC is regarded as kind of the high watermark for Hebrew literature anyway. Uh, particularly the wisdom literature would have been at that time. Not surprising because of Solomon, right? So uh, even greater in his writings than his father David. So it's a, it's a possibility likely perhaps, um, but that gives you a little bit of an introduction to the book itself and its authorship and its history. I want to take a few minutes now to talk about the themes. 
And there are three that I want to uh, talk about that, that really uh, uh, are, I would say, the main ones. First one is faith in a sovereign God. This is something that every speaker in this book is going to address in one way or the other. And even from the narrator, from the writer's, author's viewpoint, that is also addressed, sometimes directly, sometimes not. But let's, let's uh, deal with the, the big elephant in the room question. Why are there things in our lives that are beyond our control? Or, as it's sometimes put, why is there suffering? Why are these things that appear to be harmful to us, how, how do we deal with them? Uh, you know, we tend to ask why, do we not, when our experience seems to be at odds with our theology, particularly as believers. If we think about it, though, everybody has a theology. Everybody. Even an atheist, professing atheist, has a theology. Theology just means talk about God, words about God. So we all have a, some idea of what, of what deity is and how we relate to it and how uh, we live in light of it or in the absence of it. But nonetheless, when our experiences don't fit our understanding of deity, of divine power, of, of what God is supposed to do, and I put the word supposed to, uh, in quotation marks, when our experience doesn't jive with that, we go, why? why? Why is this happening? And sometimes we ask why because we really want to know, we want to have an opportunity to praise God in the midst of it. And sometimes we ask why with our fists clenched and shaking them into the heavens. But the bridge between experience and theology is faith. And that is a huge component here in this book, the theme of faith in God's sovereignty. Now there's a couple of, there's three different, and you can see I've got them there for you in the notes, uh, if you have the notes insert. My apologies for our bad printer today, this uh, week. But uh, think about these three different approaches that we see by the speakers in the book. First of all, there's an existential approach to faith, which is not much faith at all. Uh, and and uh, that's going to surprise you uh, that I'm going to put Job in this category, at least at the beginning. And this, that's because Job, as you can tell by all the things that have taken place, even though he says what the Lord has done, it's, it's fine. And yet as you go through the rest of the book, Job really is struggling to live out the theology that he knows with what he's experiencing. And from the existential standpoint, there are no answers. He's got no answers. He's got nothing. He just can't figure this out. He knows what his integrity is. He knows who God is. And he cannot figure out why this happened. And he doesn't have any answers. That's the existentialism that we see here in the book. Then there is the faith approach. And that is uh, the narrator's view. The, the, the author's view. And that is that God knows the answers. Even though Job doesn't, even though the rest of the guys don't, God knows the answers. That's the faith component approach here. And then the last one is the rationalist approach. And that's all of Job's friends with the exception of really Elihu. But that's, they think they have all the answers. 
They've got it all figured out. They've got the whole system figured out. And they've got God put into their box and Job put in their box. And they've got all the answers. And God rejects that as um, uh, insufficient and wrong because they don't have all the answers. In many respects, you know, we, we, we all walk somewhere between that existential and faith response to what goes on. Because there's, there are limitations because of our minds and hearts to what we can know. We don't know the mind of God. We, we, he, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We, we, we're not on that level. And that frustrates us because that's the fear of the unknown. We, we, we want the answers so that we can handle these problems ourselves without God. And God says, trust me. I have the answers and you don't need to have them. And that's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to be. Well, it is interesting, though, that as, as you look at the various speakers, uh, as they are struggling with all of this, they think they have all the answers, and they, they actually sound pretty good in many respects. They, they've got some things right. They've got, a, they've got a, a, a good bit of truth in there. Their, their actual theology about God's sovereignty and so on is orthodox. All of them uh, have somewhere in their speeches that they are... Praising God, there's a doxology somewhere as they're, they're uh, striving to exalt him as the one who's in, uh, in charge and, and has all things in hand. So that's awesome. So they recognize that, uh, and that does indicate that they have a level of faith anyway, even though they end up misapplying some things, and we'll talk some more about that in a bit. Uh, this, the aspect of God's sovereignty here under this faith umbrella is um, is a big thing in the book. Take take your Bibles and turn to chapter twelve. We will be looking at uh, bouncing around the book quite a bit. So, chapter twelve and verse thirteen. Uh, Job is talking about this here. Uh, With God, our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. This is. He tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. This is all about his sovereignty. Job recognizes that. The other guys do too. Um, Chapter 2 and verse 10. What does he tell his wife? Because his wife says, curse God and die. And he says to her, uh, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So Job understands this idea of sovereignty, and, and even the others do as well. Again, they misapply it, but nonetheless, they recognize uh, that uh, God is sovereign. Sovereign over calamity, sovereign over good times, sovereign over everything. Now, if there's, ever, uh, uh, if there's any point at which, when we think about theology, that our fallen human pride starts raising its hackles. It's this whole idea of God being sovereign. Because that's the thing about sovereignty. Um, uh, sovereignty is, is uh, something that isn't shared. If a person is sovereign, he's sovereign without respect to anybody else. So uh, we... we are used to thinking about sovereignty. And, and in fact, there's a whole philosophical discussion that 
talks about the idea of sphere sovereignty as the different spheres of life, whether it's family or church or or um, or government or whatever it is that that within those spheres of influence and activity that that there are those that, and particularly from a Christian standpoint, that God has allocated sovereignty over who's going to be in charge of what, and that's a wonderful study to go through, um, but. It doesn't change the fact that somebody allocated all those, that somebody put all those things in place, and that ultimately, even though there are uh, lesser sovereigns, um, there's an ultimate sovereign over all, and that is God himself. And that theme is throughout this book with an encouragement to trust him. And then also as an aspect of his sovereignty, uh, we uh, will see like in verse uh, 17 of chapter 7, 17 and 18, you can turn over there real quick. Job is talking here, asks the questions. What is the question? What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. This, this theme also has to do with God sovereignly uh, injecting himself into the affairs of mankind. Uh, even to minute things, it, it's interesting that the word visit here uh, in other contexts in the scriptures, such as in Zechariah, the same word is used, but it's translated as punishment. It fits that uh, context there very well. You know, sometimes uh, we, we, we've had the Hivalis here for a visit this week. Uh, it has not been a punishment to have them here. Generally, we think of visiting as a, a pleasant thing, something that we look forward to and enjoy. But, you know, and we would love it if every time the Lord came among us and ministered to us, if it was all sweetness and light all the time. But sometimes those visits are there for correctional purposes. Sometimes they're there for uh, refining purposes. We don't like to think about that too much. We, we don't really want that part of sovereignty. It's hard to trust the Lord and those when he exercises sovereignty in that way. And yet we see that going on in the book of Job here throughout this visitation really is his involvement in the affairs of men. And, and to, our, to our eyes, as we look at what's going on here, this is a key, a, a key point of, of discussion and difference in the way Job's friends deal with this, and the way Job deals with it, and the way God talks about it. Uh, they, they, uh, they want visitation to all be the good stuff. Um, and if it's bad, then, well, you know you messed up. And it doesn't necessarily work out that way. Again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but uh, that is uh, that idea of visitation's a big one here of the Lord's inter, inter, interjecting Himself into our lives. I'm thankful that He does that. Are you, are not you thankful that He does that? That He's not just a God who's out there somewhere and never deals with us, never interacts with us, never really loves us or shows His care for us, provides for us, or ministers to us for His Word. I'm thankful that He's He's present, that He accommodates. His, um, he accommodates himself to our frailty so that we can have some level of communion and, and, and joy and interaction with him, even to the point of saying, you know, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And uh, I, I, if ever that command was lived out uh, we, in the scriptures, we see it here in the book of Job, where Job basically wants to take the Lord to court. At the end, say, all right, I got, I got a case to put before you. And the Lord tolerates that. 
and indeed seems to welcome it. And uh, uh, I'm thankful that we have this example here. It gives me courage to come to the Lord when I have a, a complaint and a lack of understanding and a fear that I know that I will be received. And even if the answers he gives me are not what I was expecting, um, I know that from his word, um, he is faithful to visit me, both in affliction and in blessing. So that's one big theme, faith in a sovereign God. Now, the next one is a big one, and this is where I get the title of this from. And that is the whole idea of completeness. And that is not something that uh, you probably thought about too much uh, when you've read through the book of Job. But it really is the key to understanding Job's dilemma. Now, the word, the word here is, uh, the word tamam, it means complete. No surprise there. There are various forms of this word. It appears throughout the book about 18 times. Every speaker uses it, except for Zophar. I think Zophar is probably the one that's the most out to lunch on his thinking with Job. But nonetheless, uh, everybody else uh, uses this word in some context or fashion in their, their speaking. It's interesting that the first six references that use this word completeness all are speaking about completeness in the context of the fear of God. Um, as far as the rest of them, all but four of them are related to righteousness. Uh, so Job does talk a lot about his righteousness, does he not? And he insists that he is tamam when it comes to righteousness. He is complete in righteousness, which seems a pretty bold thing to say. And yet he says it over and over again. God never rebukes him for that. So let's, what's going on with that? Now the last four that are left over, they, they have different meanings in the context. One of them in chapter 21 uh, refers to possessing full strength. Um, the contrast is in, uh, to a bitter and empty soul, uh, to be full and complete. We, we often talk about, oh, our hearts are so full, you know. Particularly when I'm looking at my grandkids, you know. Oh. Uh, yeah, our hearts are full as opposed to a bitter and empty one. Um, the, uh, Job, when he talks about um, coming to the end of his speech, which is still not really quite the end of his speech, he goes on a little ways, but in chapter 31, he says, well, this is the end of my speech. And he uses the word to mama. Okay, my speech is complete. I'm done. Um, Elihu, uh, makes also, Elihu's the youngest, youngest guy there, right? So he waits till all the other older guys speak. And he mentions that he's the youngest guy. But he does say, as the youngest guy in chapter 36, I just want you to know that I have complete knowledge. Perfect knowledge. It's like, well, I like a lot of young guys. I was one of those. Uh, at least so I've been told. I don't know. Go figure. Um, anyway, Elihu uses this word in that context there. And in chapter 37, Eli's, Elihu actually redeems himself a little bit in that, tells you that he was speaking relatively speaking. Um, he comments and points out that only God possesses perfect knowledge in uh, chapter 37. So, um, yeah, Elihu's talking about a qualitative perfection, perhaps in comparison to what the other guys were saying. Um, but God is complete in both quality and quantity 
of his knowledge being perfect. In any way, all of these things have to do with being complete or being full. It can be translated throughout the English Bible as blameless. It depends on the context. Blameless, having integrity, being guiltless. When we're talking about full strength or something coming to its end or perfection. Now, it's interesting that most of the occurrences in the book of Job refer to Job. Either God declaring him to be complete, which happens. So it's not just Job, you know, blowing his own horn. God says, you know, look at my servant Job. He's, says the devil, he's a complete guy. He's a full guy. Um, and many of them, Job is insisting that he is complete. Or uh, his friends are declaring that he isn't complete. Or his wife telling him to abandon his completeness and curse God. So it all has to do with integrity and being full and not having any chinks in his armor is what it boils down to. How many of you here have any chinks in your armor? Can we say, uh, you know, if any of us would say, you know, I've got, I have perfect knowledge. uh, We might say, stand there a minute. Okay, now you feel back to reality because you don't. Um, or we might look at ourselves in the mirror and slap ourselves, whatever the case may be. But Job insists on this. But where does his integrity, where does his completeness lie? And this is the real critical thing. Look at verses, uh, at ch- chapter 27 and verse 5. Now, Job is referring to his critics. Actually, I mean, you know what? I'm going I'm to read beginning of verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, speaking to his friends. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job, his integrity, all of his talk about integrity, his righteousness and all of that is in the context of walking in the fear of God. This reverential fear of God, it has not varied and no matter what happens, he will not abandon it. That is something that all of us should prayerfully uh, seek in our own hearts and lives, to be able to, to declare, yes, we are walking in righteousness according to, God's, to, according to God's righteousness, according to God's standard, and we will not let it go no matter what happens. It will not compromise, will not uh, curse God and die, but no, we'll hold fast to what uh, we know of him and, and to the righteousness that we have because of our relationship with him. Job is a complete man, and here's the point, because he is a righteous, God-fearing man. That's what makes him complete. Not his possessions, not his family. Wow, if there was ever any uh, question about Jesus' statement that Satan is a murderer from the beginning, do you have any more evidence than what Satan did to all of Job's servants, and to all of his children. He murdered them. 
And even in the face of that injustice, Job says, I'm not going to curse God. I don't understand this. I don't get it. But I'm not going to curse him. I'm going to trust him. That's why Job is a complete man. But this is also the dilemma. Is it not? In fact, this is the very point of the whole huge question in the middle of this book. This just screams at you. If Job is so righteous and God-fearing, why has God allowed this to happen to him? Why did God put Job, this righteous man, God-fearing man, into the hands of the adversary? Why did he do that? As we see the story unfold, we're tempted to, to cry out with Job, right? Uh, I've declared things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I just, we don't understand. We cannot wrap our heads around why God did what he did. So that brings us to the third theme. And, and here's where it really starts getting personal to us because this is, where our, this is where our thought patterns lie. But I think it, it's helpful to have all these other things as background, as a foundation for then dealing with the next area of, of uh, which is referred to as theodicy or God's justice in answering the question, why do the innocent suffer? And I'm going to put the word innocent in quotation marks uh, because truly there is no one who is innocent before God. But from our perspective of people that don't seem to deserve what happens to them, um, why does that suffering take place? And for many people in this world, uh, they look at the suffering, they look at the wars, they look at the heartache, they look at the illness, they look at all these other things and think, if God is really God, none of this stuff would ever happen. So, you know, uh, because they're all determining what is good by their own standard, right? But they look at that and go, well, I'm done with this God stuff. But this really is a huge question. But you have to understand that whole faith and sovereignty you have to understand I'm only complete and ready to deal with stuff, ready to deal with the fear of the unknown if I'm actually righteous according to his standard. And, and so then, okay, um, I, I, for most of us, I think we know how that righteousness according to his standard takes place. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. But let's talk about this idea of God's justice. Now, the view of the, of the narrator is seen there in chapter one, which Brother Anup read for us. Satan has made a challenge to God. Why do they suffer? Because we have an adversary. It's not because God's being mean. It's because we have an adversary. Satan's made a challenge to God. He's trying to, he's trying to not just put Job down for the sake of putting Job down. He wants to put God down. He wants to show up God. He wants, to, he wants this guy that God has blessed incredibly to curse God. He wants to show God that the only reason that Job cares about God at all is just because God has given him all this stuff. And if he can prove that, then he shows that God truly is not worthy of anything except just being the divine, you know, birthday present giver. Yeah, the divine Santa Claus, yeah. And so Job is, he doesn't have a clue about any of this, right? He doesn't know anything about it. God didn't send him a memo and go, oh, by the way, prepare yourself. Job is unwittingly, uh, you know, on ground zero, the battleground of this incredible spiritual war. 
That's what the narrator tells us, a little bit about God's justice, and that there is there's something going on in the court of heaven, that the Lord's purposes are greater than ours, and, and God will be glorified in all of this, even as uh, occasionally uh, we must suffer because of the, the wicked uh, works of our adversary. Now, Job's friends, I mentioned before, their theology is pretty orthodox, but they misapplied the law of sowing and reaping. Basically, they, had, they were all operating, except for Elihu, they were all operating on the principle that if and only if you sin, you suffer. Their answer to suffering was, you have blown it, Job, somewhere. You need to fess up to your sin. You've oppressed somebody. You haven't taken care of the poor. You've cheated somebody. You've done something else. Therefore, the Lord is laying you low. He is punishing you directly, even though we know it was Satan who was afflicting him. Nonetheless, they are saying, you've clearly sinned, and uh, therefore the problem is yours. If you look at chapter 4, and verses 7 and 8, we read uh, this. Here's Eliphaz speaking in verse 7. Summarizes this whole viewpoint very well that the other guys share and go on ad nauseum, page after page after page, trying to prove their point. But he says, remember, this chapter 4, verse 7, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Now, is there an element of truth there? There is. And the reason that there is is that because there's nobody who's truly innocent. However, that's not what Eliphaz is thinking. He's thinking about your behaviors. And uh, you, didn't, you didn't earn that, so... Therefore, you would go on in blessing. Um, I don't want to remind people of sorrows that you've had in your life specifically, but just think about your life or think about the lives of people that you know or people who are innocent have perished. Who, and let's even define innocence in this way, that the things they were doing at the time that they perished were not things that would have led to them you know, being perished. They weren't being stupid. They weren't being foolish. They weren't being wicked. They were just living their lives and boom, something took place. It happens all the time. As a chaplain, when I go out and, and try to comfort people that have experienced a loss, you know, yes, there are some who the, the person died because, you know, they, they overdosed on something or they they were doing something extremely foolish. And, you can, and, and to our minds, we can go, yeah, well, okay, see why that happened. But many times, nobody saw it coming. Some unexpected health thing or an accident on the road or whatever else, that they were doing something completely innocent, completely moral and, and upright, and the loss takes place. You know, for, for these guys, they're like, well, you know, obviously... They did something wrong, and the Lord is punishing them. And, and yet, what did Jesus say? Uh, remember the guy who was born blind? John chapter 9. The disciples go, the disciples who are thinking just like Job's friends, they go, hey, what, did this guy sin or his parents that, you know, he's born blind? And uh, Jesus emphatically says, neither, he, neither did he sin or his parents, but God, in order to be glorified, put him in this condition, which seems like, well, that's kind of arbitrary. And yet, uh, who is this world all about? Us or the Lord who created it? 
Um, and certainly the Lord brought about for his glory the restoration of that man's sight. But the point was, is that he hadn't done, you know, he hadn't been, you know, running down the hall as a boy with a pencil in his hand. You know, and therefore, no, he was born blind. Was not, it wasn't that Jesus was saying, that guy's never sinned. He's perfect. His, his parents are sinless. That wasn't the point. It was that there was no action that could be tied to that disaster. But that doesn't work for Job's friends. They were misapplying this law of sowing and reaping. Didn't recognize that God's sovereignty extended to also things that were not so pleasant. Uh, and Job continues to maintain his innocence. And that doesn't jive with their theology. So they get more and more frustrated with him. And he gets more and more frustrated with them, as we'll see uh, in a moment. Uh, what is jo uh, Job's view here? Now, Job has the same theology, essentially, as his friends do. He knows who God is. And yet, uh, Job knows that he's blameless. He knows that he hasn't done anything specifically to deserve these things. He He's not ever saying, I am living in sinless perfection. But it's with the idea of, I, I haven't done something that trips the, the switch on this judgment hammer here. This is, he can only scratch the surface of some things. Uh, and I won't take time to look at all of these, but in chapter 3, he's questioning why. He's asking, what's the point of life? Why did I even get born? You know, if I'm going to suffer like this. He doesn't get any answers to those questions which I think frustrates him. In, in response to these guys that are coming at him saying, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned, Job's response in chapter 6 is basically, I'm not an idiot. I would recognize sin if it were present. And you, you rather believe him when he says that. And I think, you know, we can all say, yeah, I could be more sensitive to the sin in my own heart and recognize it when it comes. But I think all of us, if we've got any sensibilities before the Lord at all, and we're walking before Him, we have His Spirit, we recognize, maybe not to a full extent, and the whole nature of our corruption and the difficulties there, but we recognize that we're sinful. And Job says, I, I, I would get that, okay? And in chapter 10, he comes to the Lord and says, Lord, you know I'm innocent. You know I haven't done anything. So he's wrestling with all of this. And, and yet he recognizes that he's part of a, a bit of a system. Now, we don't have a full picture of any kind of a you know a church structure kind of thing here but you do have the structure of here's his friends coming to counsel with him and give him godly advice and all that sort of thing so there is that interaction and this system job is not too happy with right at the moment so in chapter 16 or uh, or 12 rather um he he uh he kind of lets him have it it's uh i don't know what am i in, the perversity of my heart. This is one of my favorite verses. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 2. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He looks at them and just says, you guys are, you are clueless. And you think you know everything. Look over at chapter 16. You know, here's so much for all your great sounding words. And they go on and on and on, don't they? Chapter 16 uh, beginning at verse 2, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforts, comforters are you all. Shall windy words have no end? He just, yeah, he's like, enough. Enough with you trying to fix me when you don't have the tools yourself. And we can certainly sympathize with him there. 
What he wants is to reason directly with God. He says that in uh, verse uh, 3 of chapter 13. And he's willing to do that even if it kills him. Verse uh, 3, he says, I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. And in verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Seems kind of cocky, doesn't it? And yet the Lord does command us to interact with him and to bring our complaints and our, our, our grievances to him. And so Job, is, he understands that. And he's willing to take whatever happens. But he wants, to, he wants to know. He wants to be vindicated. Just give me the chance, he seems to be saying in chapter 23 and in other places. Um, you know, James talks about the patience of Job. The things that we've talked about here so far, does it sound like Job is very patient? At least in the way we usually define patience is this kind of quiet, submissive acquiescence to things like, okay, fine, just endure. You know, um, this endurance or perseverance is not about quiet acceptance necessarily. Job never forsook his relationship with God. He had no answers that made sense to him. And yet he was still willing to go back to God and boldly say, why, Lord, can you tell me? It doesn't make sense to me. And the Lord, as we know, the Lord never tells Job anything that we know of, at least it's recorded, about the battle in heaven or anything else. He doesn't give him any of that stuff. He is going to remind Job about some other things. Uh, but before we get to God's view here, let's talk about Elihu. Now, Elihu has the same theology as everybody else, but uh, a little different application. If you look at chapter 32, and we won't take time to read all of this, but just to get into it uh, slightly, chapter 32 and verse 6 he says, I'm young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. And then he goes on to prove that he's really not all that timid. Um, but anyway, uh, he recognizes it's in the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Elihu's got some things going on here. He understands something about how God's spirit works and how God ministers to people. Um uh, he recognizes, as you go on and read through chapter 32, that the purpose of suffering is not to be seen in the cause of suffering, but in the result of the suffering, the improvement before God. He recognizes, and Job uh, has to listen to this young man say to him, it's all in God's hands and we are not to question it. Now, Job had earlier said, if you go back to chapter 23, Job had essentially said the same thing. He, he agrees with this understanding that God is in charge. He must trust him no matter what. And he, that he doesn't have to know. And yet, as you see through the book, he struggles living that out, right? He needs this encouragement from Elihu uh, as an emphasis, as a punctuation at the, at the end of this uh, discourse and this conversation that goes back and forth to say, Job, live according to what you say you believe. You believe in a sovereign God? Well, then... Be quiet before him. Humble yourself before him. Don't think you have to have all the answers in order for you to approve. That's hard for us. You know what? There's only way that's going to happen in our hearts, is it not? It's called that word grace that we have from God to help us do that because we can't do it on our own. So what is God's view of his own justice? First of all, man is not the center of the universe. Big time. 
that is huge in the Lord's discourse at the end of the book. The whole world doesn't revolve around you, Job. I hate to tell you that. <laughs> it doesn't. Um, he never answers Job's why questions. Never once does he answer Job's why questions. But he does give him answers that help him to apply his theology properly. And here's the answer. Job, and it comes in chapter 38, when he says, Job, explain to me the universe. And here's Job's chance, right? And what is Job, when Job is confronted with who God actually is and what God actually does and how far beyond man God actually is, Job says, I'm putting my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm done. And that's smart man. Because everything is meaningful, even if the meaning is hidden from you and me. Anybody here going through some struggling and strife right now? Anybody like that? If you do, we have some more conversations to have later on. Of course, we don't like struggling. We don't like the strife. We don't like the difficulties. Of course, we want to know the meaning of it all and why this is happening. And sometimes the Lord is pleased to let us know. Sometimes we see in the fruit of those in the lives of those around us, how what we've gone through and experienced has certainly been a blessing to them and encourages them and helps them to carry on. But many times we don't. Many times we'll never see the, the ripple effects and where they go from what the Lord has ordained that we go through. You know, there is much that is independent of man, and this is where the Lord is talking to Joe about in the universe. You know, we like to be in control of our world, do we not? But so much in this world is utterly independent of man. Utterly independent of man. And, and yet, at the same time, absolutely vital for the whole world to just keep spinning and doing what it does. Because, you know, if you think about the whole evolutionary arguments, right? You know, about things that have to develop over time and all of that kind of stuff. But no, God created them complete. Because if you take any component out of that, it doesn't work. There is no life. So the Lord has all these things in hand, even if we don't know. All of it's governed by God, who holds all things together by the words of his power. And it's the same thing in the spiritual world. Though you don't know the reason, you do know the God who does know. And that is the source of your hope and faith, even in the midst of suffering. That is how you can determine how complete you are. And it's your ability to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't have to know all the answers. <laughs> the fact, is the matter, fact of the matter is, is that we're not capable of knowing all the answers. Not even remotely. The Lord desires that we trust Him, exercising our faith. Because if we walk by sight, by what we can see, what we control, what we think that we have in hand, we're lost. If we walk by faith, in our Lord and in our Savior, we are saved. Remember uh, what the Apostle Paul says, looking unto Jesus, or the author of Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author of our salvation. Yeah, we're looking unto him. Take a look at chapter 42, real quick, in the book of Job. At the end, Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. 
I had heard uh, of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Lord uh, brought Job to the place where he understood that he had to just trust in the Lord absolutely and completely, holding nothing back. We do that how? Based upon our relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. And you cannot be complete, as I said before, unless you're righteous. Where does that righteousness come from? You don't possess it. I don't possess it. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It is only the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness imputed to our account by his grace, by his love, and by his work. We are complete in him. And that's the only way that we're complete. We can only walk worthy of him, of our calling, living when we live in the fear of God and in the recognition that all of our righteousnesses are hidden in him. Christ has done it. God takes care of the rest. And when he does, when when he makes us complete in Christ, yes, there's still unknowns, But that fearful future no longer holds any real dread for us because in Christ we have the peace of God that passes all understanding that keeps our hearts and minds in our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Job and what we learn from it regarding trusting you, even in the midst of suffering. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we meditate upon these things this week, particularly if we're in the midst of affliction and challenge. Lord, we will find comfort, as Job did, in your absolute sovereignty and power and wisdom that far exceeds anything that we can do, anything that we can think, anything that we can understand. Yet you do it. Lord, help us to rest in you and not strive to, as Job's friends did, and even Job himself, striving to know so that he could control his world. Lord, You know, let that be enough for us. For Jesus.